So we're talking today uh, with the whole theme of Hebrews about Jesus being better. Today we're talking about Jesus providing the better sacrifice. We talked last week about the tabernacle, uh, that's that place of where God dwelt, the tent that God designed where God dwelt and how Jesus is really the better tabernacle. He provides the better tabernacle for us. The end of the section we looked at last week begins to talk about um, the blood of Christ, the fact that the blood of bulls and goats can't do what His blood can do. And that theme continues into this next section where we're talking about that, the, the, the sacrifice of Jesus, what that accomplishes, why that's so important, why that's better than the blood of bulls and goats. Now, the Apostle Paul had said to the Corinthians, he said, I want to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ in Him crucified. He said, this is the message I want to bring to you. I want to exalt above all things Christ crucified, Christ the sacrifice for us. He wanted that to be his emphasis. Now, we know that when he talked to them, when he taught them, that he taught them more than just the facts of Christ crucified. We know that obviously in 1 and 2 Corinthians, he talks about apostolic authority. He talks about the use of the gifts of the Spirit. He talks about the need for us to be unified and not divided one with another. He talks about a lot of things, but all those things are based upon and made a reality because of Christ crucified. Paul had wrote to the Roman church. He had said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel being Christ crucified and risen. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. The old, old school Pentecostals used to sing, There's power in the blood. Because we understood, we believe. That what Christ did is more than just a symbol of love for us. It's more than just an act of submission to the Father. What Christ did does something for us. It, it provides for us what the Old Testament can only point to. So that's what we want to look at. So we're going to look at two main parts. In, in chapter 9, we're going to look at the necessity of Christ, uh, Jesus' sacrificial death. We want to see why was it necessary? Why does God command this? And then in chapter 10, we'll talk about the benefits. And Lord willing, we'll do this in 30 minutes. Here we go. Boom. All right. Verse 15. The author writes, For this reason, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. By means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is enforced after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Now, the language there is a bit confusing in the King James. And let me just point out, the word for testament is the same word that's used before for covenant. Same word all throughout. What he's talking about here, and the reasons probably the translators change it to testament, is he's, in a sense, referring to this idea of a last will and testament. But in, 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 sort of in, in this first century thinking, testament, covenant, contract, they are all kind of interchangeable. And the idea that he's saying is it's pretty simple. He's saying, listen, when it comes to inheritance, if somebody writes out a will, okay, if there's a will to be given, if there's an inheritance to be given, that inheritance has to be willed. It has to be declared who gets what when. And that, that will doesn't come into effect until, guess what, the person who wrote it dies. That's the point. Very simple point, kind of confusing language. But simple point is inheritance isn't received till after death. 
My parents were here not too long ago. They shared with us. They shared with me. Uh, hey, we want to let you know our stuff's in trust, and so when we pass on, there'll be something coming to you. Very nice to hear. I have no idea what it's going to be. It could be a stopwatch. I don't know. But the point is, it ain't going to happen until they pass on. And to be honest, I'd rather have them around than the stuff. But this is what he's saying. He's saying, listen, this is the way contracts works. This is the way a last will and testament works. It doesn't come into effect until the person's died. Now, he also says in verse 18, therefore, he says, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book, that is the law of the Old old Covenant, the book itself, and all the people. So he sprinkled blood on the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of ministry. That is, the things they used inside the tabernacle. Now, now here's the point that he's making. He's actually quoting from Exodus 24. You can go back and read Exodus 24 in your own time. But in Exodus 24, this is when God's initiating the covenant. He's saying, okay, listen, this is how I'm going to relate to to my people. This is the covenant I'm making with them, and we're going to meet in this place. I'm going to meet with them at this place, the tabernacle. And that covenant was, you would say, you could say rectified. It was established upon the shedding of blood. And that blood had to be sprinkled on both the people who were receiving the covenant and the instruments that were meant to bring that covenant to pass. There had to be the sprinkling of blood. The point is very simple. Covenants are confirmed by death, by the shedding of blood. Now, this wasn't just something that, that God did. This is something that was very typical in that culture. Because when you made a contract with somebody, a business contract, maybe when two tribal leaders didn't want to fight anymore, they didn't want a war against each other, when they would covenant, in fact, the word for covenant in the Old Testament is literally cut a covenant. It comes from the word to cut. What they would do is they would get an animal and they would sacrifice the animal and they would cut that animal in half. And they would lay the animal on the ground and they would walk through between the pieces of the animal. They would cut a covenant. It was a way to say, may what, may what happened to this animal happen to us if we break this deal. They're so committed to keep the covenant they made that it's, it can only be broken upon death, so to speak. It was a covenant made by death. It was that serious. So, so to cut a covenant was to do this. Now, this is what the authors wanted us to understand. Is, look, covenants are always confirmed by death. Even the old covenant was confirmed by the shed blood of Jesus. Look at verse 22. And according to the law, almost all things, notice, are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness. So the author's being clear. Listen, even in the Old Covenant, here's the way it works. Forgiveness only comes with the shedding of blood. Now, why is that? Look what the Scripture says in Leviticus. It should be on the screen. Leviticus 17, 11 says this. God said, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the, the blood that makes atonement for your soul. You know, the idea there was when, when an animal is sacrificed, that animal has given up its life. No, no mammal can survive without blood. We need blood. Our life depends upon blood. You lose too much blood, you die. And so the idea was when that animal sheds its life, when it lets go of all its life, it's given 
its life for you. Its life covers up your life. That's how it works. That's how blood atonement works. Now, you can imagine the people who are doing this probably wasn't an easy thing to do. I mean, it's, I don't know if you've ever had a slay animal. I have. It's not an easy thing to do. But when you, when you do this, he's thinking about this animal's done nothing wrong, and yet this animal is going to suffer and die for me so that my sins could be atoned for, literally covered up. Now, this is interesting because Jesus kind of taking this idea of this blood of the covenant, he says in, in Matthew 26, this is my blood of the covenant, which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, when he does that, when Jesus says those words, it's the Passover feast, the feast that celebrated God's commitment to Israel that he was going to establish a covenant with them. He's going to bring them out of Egypt as slaves and establish this covenant with them. Okay, And so what happens is, uh, you know what's going on. You guys remember the story from Exodus. Of course, there's many plagues that happened trying to convince Pharaoh to let God's people go. Pharaoh didn't want to let God's people leave Egypt. He wanted to keep them as slaves. And so finally, the final plague, the most devastating plague, was what's called the death of the firstborn, where God says, I'm going to destroy the death of every firstborn of both man and beast, of both Israel and the Gentiles. Unless you take a spotless lamb and you sacrifice that lamb and you apply the blood of that lamb to the doorposts of your home. If that happens, then the angel of death is going to bring this horrible plague, will pass over your home, and you won't experience death. So the thing is, when they're celebrating this Passover feast, it, was a, it would lead to a feast they would have that day. They'd eat it quickly. And in that feast, in the Jewish context, there would be four cups, and the last cup was the cup they would hold up. This is the cup representing the covenant that God has made with the blood of this lamb. But Jesus picks up that cup at Passover and says, this is my blood. This represents what the life that I'm about to shed for you. You see, in the same way that the animal sacrifice, the, the, the life of the animal covered up the life of the person who was bringing that animal to be sacrificed, in the same way under the new covenant, the life of Jesus, the life that he spilled and took back again, doesn't don't just cover up our sin, but makes us pure. We'll talk more about that in a second. Now look at verse 23. He continues to say, therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in heaven, in the heavens, should be purified with these, but that the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, that is, he's not entered the physical tabernacle, which are copies of the true, but he has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of of God for us. Notice it's in the presence tense, now to appear. In other words, he stays there. The, the point again, it's pretty simple. He's saying, look, if Jesus is not making a sacrifice so that some priest can represent the people one time a year in the tabernacle, he's not going into this physical tabernacle. He's going into the Holy of Holies. He's going into the heavenly places. He's going before the very presence of God with his sacrifice. And if, if there's going to be uh, if it's a heavenly tabernacle he's going into, that heavenly tabernacle requires a heavenly sacrifice. Now, I want you to think about this just for a second. 
if it's God that we sin against, and it is, I don't know if you realize that or not, that even if you sin against somebody else, when you lie to your, a friend or a family member or a coworker, when you take something that it belongs to somebody else, when, when you look with lust, when, when you do these different sorts of sins, whatever the case might be, you are sinning against that person, but ultimately you're sinning against God. That's what David the psalmist said in Psalm 51. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. I want you to think about this for a second. If we have sinned against God and we have sinned against God, we do sin against God, then that means that whatever atones for us has to be something that would satisfy who we've sinned against. In other words, it's the person we've sinned against that, makes the, that, 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 that has the impact. Let me, give you a, let me give you an example of what I'm trying to say. So, I have a commitment to my wife. We, we made vows before God uh, just over 25 years ago and that we would be uh, committed to one another till death do us part. That's the vow that we made before God and by the grace of God we intend to keep it. And so making a vow uh, to her, if, if I lie to her, it means more than if I lie to a stranger. Now, I'm not saying it's, not, it's less sinful in God's eyes or if I lie to a stranger. That's not what I'm saying. Don't use that my words against me. But what I'm saying is that relationship, the fact that she is in my, my wife, we have a covenant relationship. There's something that's, that's different. She has more authority, more influence in my life. Sinning against her means more. She has more power, more authority, more value. Therefore, a sin against her is worse, really, than a sin against just somebody I don't know. Now, here's the thing. God is the giver of every good gift and every perfect gift, according to James. God is the one who holds the very, your very breath in His hand. God is the one who has given you life. God is the one who has offered you salvation. God is the one who's created you with your gifts and abilities or lack thereof. God's the one who's done it. God's the one who deserves all glory, all attention. He has all authority. This is why we pray. Jesus taught us to pray. You know, unto Him is the kingdom and the glory and the power, both now and forever. Amen. He is the ultimate. God is God. Therefore, when we sin against Him, it's much greater. God is perfect. God only does what is good. God only says what is true. Therefore, when we sin against him, it is a greater sin. And a greater sin needs what? A greater sacrifice. So it's important we recognize that what the author's trying to say is, think about it, if God's going to actually allow you to be in his presence, if God's going to actually allow you to be near him, as sinful as you are towards him, he himself is going to have to provide a sacrifice that's sufficient enough. If you're going to be in that heavenly place, he's going to f- sacrifice something sufficient enough. Not only that, look what he says in verse 25. He says, not that he, himself should, uh, not that he should offer himself often, in other words, not that Jesus should offer himself over and over again, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, this is important. It's important because there's a whole branch of the church 
called the Roman Catholic Church that actually teaches that when you go to Mass, I could be wrong, I think though that the, the uh, Orthodox Church believes a similar thing. I could be wrong, I don't know. But the Catholic Church definitely believes that when you go to Mass, what happens is Christ is being re-crucified again. That goes directly against what the author of Hebrews is saying here. And this is important. It's important to recognize this because what, what, what he's trying to say is this. Listen, he's not just saying, look, if you are to approach this perfect God, this, this heavenly God in the heavenly place, you need a heavenly sacrifice. But listen, if you're going to stay there, if you have any hope of eternity, guess what? That sacrifice has to be good enough for eternity. It has to be an eternal sacrifice, an eternally sufficient sacrifice. And that's what he's trying to say. He's saying, listen, this is what has to take place. An eternal sacrifice, I'm sorry, an eternal tabernacle requires an eternal sacrifice. It's not going to be offered once uh, over and over again, but once it says, notice at the end of the age. Interesting, at the end of the age. Because it's not just once that it happened at one point in time in history. It did, but also it happened that one time for all time. Look, look at the way the author of Hebrews, or I'm sorry, the author of Galatians, Paul, writes this. I'm reading from the NLT. Paul writes, but when the right time came. God sent His Son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent Him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law that He could adopt us as His very own children. Now you guys that are involved with adoption, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure there's no legal way for you to unadopt your children. The state might take control of them again or something would parachute, but you can't unadopt them. Definitely in Roman times, you couldn't. Once you adopted a child, that was it. They're as yours as much as those that were born to you. No change, no difference. What, the, what Paul was saying in Galatians was, listen, at the perfect time in, in the history of man, God sent his son as a man so that he could die a sacrifice once for all time, all history past, all history, history future, all eternity. Not only that, look what he says in verse 27. And as is appointed for man to die once, but after this comes the judgment, so Christ was once, I'm sorry, was offered once to bear the sins of many. Now, you might read that and go, oh, does that mean Jesus didn't die for everybody? Well, no, it wasn't just once for all time. It was once for all people. Listen to what the Scripture says in 1 John. John writes this, He Himself, speaking of Jesus, is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And what does He say? Notice, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. The author of Hebrews says uh, the sins of many because he's probably referring specifically to those who've believed because really the blood isn't just shed. It has to be applied to your life personally. And if you haven't applied the blood of Christ to your life personally, I would encourage you to do that today. Now he says quickly at the end of this chapter, he says, to those who eagerly await for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Now, now what the author is saying is, listen, when Jesus came the first time, he came prepared to bear the cross. He knew he would bear the cross. He was not, he was not apart from sin. He wasn't sinful. The author of Hebrews makes that clear earlier, right? He, he uh, was tempted in all ways as we are, but without sin. But he who knew no sin became sin for us, right? 
that we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, He becomes sin. He connects, He he absorbs our sin by dying on the cross. But when He comes back, He doesn't come back bearing the cross. He comes back wearing the crown. He comes back as king. And the point that He's trying to make here is this. Listen, Jesus, when He comes back, He's not going to have to die again because what He did the first time was enough. He comes back then to get the reward of His sufferance, the reward of His sacrifice. So this is why it was necessary for Jesus to die. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't cleanse away sin because it's not an eternal sacrifice. It's not a heavenly sacrifice. But what Jesus does, when He did it at the right time, it was the right time for all people for all time. He had to die, otherwise there's no way we could actually have any hope of approaching God. Now, what are the benefits? Chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, notice it says, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sins. But in, in, in those sacrifices, that is the Old Testament sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Now, do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying, listen, in the Old Testament sacrificial, sacrificial system, it, it was kind of like this. In fact, let me use this analogy. Let, let's say that your salvation is like the mortgage on your house. Okay? But you got one of those mortgages that, you know, uh, uh, fluxes with the interest rates, and the interest rates go up to 150%. And so because it's gone so high and your payment's gotten so high, every month you get a notice in the post that says your mortgage is past due, you haven't paid, um, we have the right to repossess your house. But in a small print, there's a little clause that says if you call us, and ask for mercy, we may give it to you. And so you call them up and say, please have mercy. I no one can pay these rates. I don't want to lose my house. Please have mercy. And they say, okay, fine. Write down that you want that mercy. Put it in a uh, first-class envelope and send it to us, and we will let you go this month. And every month, the same thing happens. Every month, there's a new note. You have a major payment. We're going to take your house away. Every month, there's a little uh, clause there. You have to write a letter, send it back. Okay, please forgive me. And they say, okay, one more month. What happens every month? Every month you're reminded of a debt that you'll never be able to pay. That's the Old Testament. It's in, that's the purpose of the Old Testament. It's to be reminded there's a debt that you cannot pay. Here's the New Testament. You still get the notice of foreclosure. You still get to see this, oh man, I can never pay this debt. But then in bold all caps after the, the notice of foreclosure is this letter that says, listen, it says, the bank has chosen to absorb all your debt. And if you are willing to receive it, the house can be in your name and you'll own it permanently. That's the gospel. See, this is what he's trying to say. He's trying to say, listen, don't you get it? That what was the Old Testament was a shadow the very, uh, of the things to come. Uh, the, the, these sacrifices, they can't help there's no way, you, all you ever get from those Old Testament is this consciousness of sin. Now, I've been thinking about this consciousness of sin all week long. You know why? Because I've sinned all week long. I mean, I, I hope that doesn't stumble you, but it's just a fact. 
And so I thought, you know, Lord, I'm feeling this sin. How does this work with no consciousness of sin? In fact, even this morning, even this morning I found myself stumbling. And it was, it, it was funny because I had just had some time with the Lord. I'd read my Bible. I had prayed. I, I was just kind of getting ready to jump in, start making the coffees and write my notes in my Bible for this morning, all that kind of stuff that I do on a Sunday morning. And I found myself just wasting about 40 minutes on the internet, doing stupid, just nothing, wasting stupid stuff, just a wasting time. Now, it's fine. I got done pretty much on time, but I didn't get done in time for prayer. It was because I was wasting like 45 minutes on Facebook or something. You go, oh, come on, John, it's not really a sin. Yeah, it is. Because basically I chose Facebook over prayer. That's sin. And the thing is, I'm driving here from my office about 10.15 when I should have been here at 9.45. And I'm going, God, all I feel is the consciousness of sin. I I know I blew it. This is bad. And it's not the first time I've done this. Well, how am I supposed to do this? And I, and I really sense that God said, what you need to do is preach this text to yourself. <laughs> do you believe that I died for that sin? Do you believe that? Do you believe I just died for the sins up until yesterday, but now the rest are up to you? Or do you believe I died for your sins, past, present, future? What do you believe? Because what he's talking about here as far as the consciousness of sin, he's saying, listen, no one would feel like there'd be a need for another sacrifice if the animal sacrifice was good as a one-off. And this is what we are called to believe. We're not called to not feel guilty about our sin. Of course we should feel guilty about our sin. That's Hebrews chapter 12. We'll get into that later on. But we are called to recognize that the sacrifice that was once for all time, once for all men, is enough for my sins past, present, future. To believe that and to respond to God according to that. You know, the only reason why I can be that honest with you about my sinfulness is because I know Christ died for it. It's embarrassing. I'm not proud of the fact that I make that stupid mistake all the time. It's embarrassing. But I know Christ died for that sin. I know He did. And therefore, I don't have to think, gosh, if there's just another sacrifice that I can add to Jesus' sacrifice to make me okay. Well, maybe if I pray for an hour today after church, especially after service when I'm so tired, then that'll make up for the 45 minutes that I blew today. No. Christ and Christ alone, his sacrifice alone is what atones for my sin, nothing else. That's what the author of Hebrews is wanting to get through our heads. Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 11. He said, Deliver, the, the deliverer, that's Jesus, will come out of Zion. He's quoting, I should say, Isaiah. He's kind of paraphrasing two sections from Isaiah, but he says, the deliverer will come out of, uh, out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them when I notice take away their sins. This is what God does. He takes away the punishment of our sins so that we can learn to walk away from the power of sin in our life. That's what he does. Verse 5, he says, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, 
Sacrifice and offering I did not des- you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In, the, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Now, the author is quoting from Psalm chapter 40 in the, what's called the Septuagint, or the Greek version of the Bible. And he is using a bit of liberty here. He's, he's paraphrasing a bit. Now, what he's trying to say here, in, in a nutshell, is that he's, he's quoting Psalm 40 as if Jesus said these words, as if Jesus would have quoted Psalm 40 about himself. That's the way he's doing it here, okay? And what he's talking about here is not so much about a body as a sacrifice, as much as, like in other words, like a, the, just the cross. He's not talking about just the cross. He's talking about this sort of mindset of a servant, that Jesus came as a servant saying, God, I'm just here to do whatever you want. This is exactly what the Gospels teach us, okay? Listen, the Bible says in the book, actually in, in the scriptures as well, the Bible says this in Philippians. It says, Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, notice, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name. We're called servants church because the church belongs to Jesus and he came as a servant. Servants, apostrophe S, it's his church. He came and served us, purchased us with his own blood. Now this is what the author is writing about. He's seeing seeing this reality of, of Jesus coming as this obedient servant, okay? Doing the very will of God. That's important to understand. Verse eight says, Previously saying, sacrifices and offerings, uh, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor you had, uh, nor had pleasure in them which were offered according to the law. In other words, he's saying first he wants to make this point that the Old Testament wasn't pleasing to God. It wasn't enough. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Notice he says, he takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, that is the will of God that was accomplished by Christ, by that will, he has been, he ha, we have sorry, been sanctified, keep that word in mind, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, notice that here it is again, once for all. Now here's what he means. When he talks about the first, he's talking about the Old Testament sacrifices. In other words, the first refers to our dependency on pleasing God through our bringing sacrifices. Over and over again. I sin today, another sacrifice. I sin tomorrow, another sacrifice. Sin the next day, another sacrifice. You understand? Over and over again, because we sin, over and over again, we're dependent upon bringing these sacrifices, finding, finding the, 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 the resources to give the right sacrifice to atone for our sin. He says God's taken that away. Why? So he can establish the second. What's the second? The second is this. It's Jesus... His sacrifice, that we're dependent upon that to be fully pleasing to God. See, this is the benefit of of Christ's sacrificial death. Because Jesus is fully pleasing to God, always did God's will, including a willingness to go to the cross. What did Jesus pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? God, is there any other way? Take this cup from me. But there was no other way. So the Father gave up His own Son. And Jesus submitted to that. He did the Father's will. And he was perfectly 
pleasing to God. Jesus said this about his own walk with God. He said, And he who sent me is with me, speaking of God. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do the things that please him. Let me ask you a question. Do you always do the things that please God? We'd probably be better to say we rarely do the things that please God. Or I sometimes do the things that please God. But Jesus always does the things that please God. Now listen, understand that, listen, that is your righteousness. That's what the blood of Christ provides for you, that God can look at you and say, they please me. That's why the Bible says in the book of Ephesians, it pleases the Lord to save us. Why? Because Jesus fully pleased the Father through sacrifice. God takes away that that first, the, the, the dependence we might have on our own works or our own sacrifices to try to atone for our own sins. He says, I'm getting rid of that. Why? Because I want to establish this second. What Christ has done fully pleases me. Can you get more pleasing than fully pleasing? See, we we live as if we're not pleasing to God. Now, there can be things that we do that aren't pleasing to God, but it doesn't mean that we aren't pleasing to God or that God's not still pleased to save us. Some of you might have had the kind of parents that are really hard to please. that's, That's not a fun thing. Having the kind of parents that just never seem to think what you've done is enough. And it's easy for us then to try to project it onto God. God never seems to be happy with me. Is that really what the Scripture says? That's not what the Gospel declares. The Gospel declares that He's pleased to save you. The Gospel declares that He's fully pleased with Jesus. And if you're in Jesus, guess what? He's pleased with you. He's pleased to do what He's doing in your life. You want to make God smile? Trust Him. Trust that what He's done is enough. I'm going too long. I've got to finish. Verse 11, he says, For every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, and from that time waited till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, notice, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Love that verse. Same word, sanctified, that he used in verse 10. Sanctified, listen, means to be set apart as holy. That's what it means to be sanctified. It's like God grabbing you by the shoulders and going, okay, you belong to the world. No longer you belong to me. I've set you apart for myself. I've sanctified you. Did you see what it says? By his one offering, he has perfected forever those that are being sanctified. But did you notice we said in verse 10, we have been sanctified. Which is it? Are we already sanctified? Are we being sanctified? The answer is yes. It's both. God has taken you and placed you and says, look, I have given you this position of sanctification. You're set apart for me, and guess what? I'm gonna grow you into that to where your life is gonna look like you are. I, give, I shared the story before, but it's a great story. Kid growing up in my youth group used to wear his dad's army jacket to youth when he was about 13, 14. 
and would be flopping in the, you know, over his arms. It was way too big for him. But he was proud. It said his last name on it, Dragston. He was like, Dragston, that's me. Proud of his dad. You know, now that guy is about 5'10 and just yoked, man. He's just, he is just really beefy. And he looks good in that jacket. See, his dad gave him that jacket, said, this is the identity. I am, you are my son. This is now your jacket. You're robed in my identity. But he had to grow into it before it actually fit. Now, this is what you have to understand. What the author is saying here is this. He's saying the sacrifice of Jesus, listen, provides not just for your positional sanctification, but your progressive sanctification. See, this is why we have to learn to relate rightly to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit, listen, is applying the work of Christ to our life on a daily basis. The Holy Spirit is working in us to make us like Jesus. That's what we should want. That's what we should want. Verse 15, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us for after he had said before, and then he quotes Jeremiah This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And then he says, now where there is remission of sin, that is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. You know why? There doesn't need to be. Now this this is really cool because he's saying, look, the covenant is God saying, I will make with them this covenant. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them. I will remember no more. Do you notice how the new covenant is all based on what God's going to do for us? I will, I will. God's going to do this. Listen to this. I'll close with these two verses. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, should be on the screen, says, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. Isn't that a great reputation that Paul would write to the Thessalonians and say, you know what, we didn't have to teach to love one another. God's taught them yourself, and everyone knows what a loving church you guys are. What a great reputation. Can you imagine if all of England said, oh, I know a servant's church. Those guys really love each other. God, let it be. (laughs) That's awesome. But notice what he says. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Is that Paul never being satisfied with the church that he planted? Is that God never being satisfied with the people that he loves? No. It's God saying, you've been set apart to love, so grow in that love. You've been set apart by love, grow in that love. Notice also, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 23 of 1 Thessalonians. Paul closes with this. He says, and this is how I'll close with us today. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Do you know why you can be completely confident right now, no matter what a rubbish morning you had or a rubbish week you had, or no matter how you're going, when is the service going to be over? Even if you're mad at me now and you're feeling guilty about that, that's okay. Here's the reality. You can know right now that one day you're actually going to love me the way you're supposed to. <laughs> one day you're actually going to love God the way he's worthy. You know why? Because he who called you is faithful who also will do it.
Jesus' sacrificial death guarantees not just a position of sanctification, but the progress in sanctification. It's, it's, that's what the Holy Spirit, why the Holy Spirit never gives up on working on us. Amen?